0: Sign up today at ButcherBox.com Sleepy and use code Sleepy to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. ButcherBox.com Sleepy. Eat well, sleep well.
1: Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts.
0: Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. I have a really delightful bedtime story for you tonight to snooze soundly to. And before I get to the story, I just want to say that this episode is proudly sponsored by Shopify. If you have a business like me, um, or if you've been wanting to start your own business, Shopify just helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to first brick and mortar stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify is there to help you grow whether you're selling scented soap or handmade leather jackets wherever and whatever you're selling shopify's got you covered shopify also helps you convert browsers online to real paying customers so you can sell more with less effort it's legit It's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. They've got great customer service, and they just want to help you grow. As an entrepreneur myself, I crave anything that helps me keep my business running smoother so that I can do more of what I love, which is reading books to you. Shopify helps people just like me do that, and uh, they can help you too. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash otis, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash otis now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash otis, otis. I'll also put a link for this in the description of the show. And now... I'd like to profoundly thank uh, our brand new patrons on patreon.com where you can go and pledge a couple bucks to uh, get an ad-free version of the show, which there's also a banner right at the top of this Spotify page, if you look. So this week's wonderful new patrons, Lisa McKay, Emil Wellington, Murray Urgar, Kerwin, Celine Dragon, Aaron G., and Maggie Brown. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. It really, really means a lot. So thank you. And if you're listening and you don't know uh, why I just read these names, they are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is where you can go and support the Sleepy podcast and be a part of making it. Um, Like I said, there's this little blue icon at the top of the Spotify page, um, which is uh, where you can click to get access to the ad-free version of the show for $2 a month. Um, $5 gets you access to our poetry feed, but even if you donate a dollar, then I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, if you would like to be a part of making the show even for a dollar, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight, um, we a really lovely story that I'd never read before, and we've read D.H. Lawrence on the show at least once, and, um... This is a really lovely story to go to sleep to. I love D.H. Lawrence's writing. It's uh, very much... It sounds like it's written to be read aloud. Uh, it feels good to read it. Like uh, like I'm reading a story to someone by, you know, fireside or, or you know, by bedside, which is kind of the idea of the show. Anyways, that's, that's how it feels like when you read D.H. Lawrence's writing. And this is of a classic beautiful old um, Jane Austen-esque love story that takes place in the UK and it's uh, the gorgeous one to fall asleep to, so I hope you like it. Without further ado, Women in Love by D.H. Lawrence. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed, get real comfortable, close your eyes, and let me read to you. Chapter 1. Sisters Ursula and Gudrun Brangwen sat one morning in the window bay of their father's house in Beldover, working and talking. Ursula was stitching a piece of brightly colored embroidery, and Gudrun was drawing upon a board which she held on her knee. They were mostly silent, talking as their thoughts strayed through their minds. Ursula, said Gudrun, don't you really want to get married? Ursula laid her embroidery in her lap and looked up. Her face was calm and considerate. I don't know, she replied. It depends how you mean. Gudrun was slightly taken aback. She watched her sister for some moments. Well, she said, ironically, it usually means one thing. But don't you think, anyhow, you'd be, she darkened slightly, in a better position than you are now? A shadow came over Ursula's face. I might, she said, but I'm not sure. Again, Gudrun paused, slightly irritated. She wanted to be quite definite. You don't think one needs the experience of having been married, she asked. Do you think it need be an experience, replied Ursula. Bound to be, in some way or other, said Gudrun, coolly. Possibly undesirable, but bound to be an experience of some sort. Not really, said Ursula. More likely to be the end of experience. Gudrun sat very still to attend to this. Of course, she said, there's that to consider. This brought the conversation to a close. Gudrun almost angrily took up her rubber and began to rub out part of her drawing. Ursula stitched absorbedly. You wouldn't consider a good offer, asked Gudrun. I think I've rejected several, said Ursula. Ursula. Really, Gudrun flushed our, but anything really worthwhile? Have you really? A thousand a year, and an awfully nice man. I liked him awfully, said Ursula. Really? But weren't you fearfully tempted? In the abstract, but not in the concrete, said Ursula. When it comes to the point, one isn't even tempted Oh, if I were tempted, I'd marry like a shot. I'm only tempted not to. The faces of both sisters suddenly lit up with amusement. Isn't it an amazing thing, cried Gudrun, how strong the temptation is not to. They both laughed, looking at each other. In their hearts they were frightened. There was a long pause, whilst Ursula stitched and Gudrun went on with her sketch. The sisters were women, Ursula, 26, and Gudrun, 25, but both had the remote, virgin look of modern girls, sisters of Artemis rather than of Hebe. Gudrun was very beautiful, passive, soft-skinned, soft-limbed. She wore a dress of dark blue silky stuff, with rushes of blue and green linen lace in the neck and sleeves, and she had emerald green stockings. Her look of confidence and diffidence contrasted with Ursula's sensitive expectancy. The provincial people, intimidated by Gudrun's perfect sang froid and exclusive bareness of manner, said of her, she is a smart woman. She had just come back from London, where she had spent several years working at an art school as a student and living a studio life. I was hoping now for a man to come along, Gudrun said, suddenly catching her underlip between her teeth and making a strange grimace, half sly smiling, half anguish. Ursula was afraid. So you have come home, expecting him here, she laughed. Oh, my dear, cried Gudrun, striding. I wouldn't go out of my way to look for him. But if there did happen, i come along a highly attractive individual of sufficient means. Well, she tailed off ironically. Then she looked searchingly at Ursula, as if to probe her. Don't you find yourself getting bored? she asked of her sister. Don't you find that? Things fall to materialize, nothing materializes, everything withers in the bud. What withers in the bud, asked Ursula. Oh, everything, oneself, things in general. There was a pause whilst each sister vaguely considered her fate. It does frighten one, said Ursula. Then again there was a pause but do you hope to get anywhere by just marrying? It seems to be the inevitable next step, said Gudrun. Ursula pondered this with a little bitterness. She was a class mistress herself in Willie Green Grammar School as she had been for some years. I know, she said. It seems like that when one thinks in the abstract, but really imagine it. Imagine any man one knows. Imagine him coming home to one every morning and saying hello and giving one a kiss. There was a blank pause. Yes, said Gudrun in a narrowed voice. It's just impossible. The man makes it impossible. Of course there's children, said Ursula doubtfully. Gudrun's face hardened. Do you really want children, Ursula? She asked coldly. A dazzled, baffled look came on Ursula's face. One feels it is still beyond one, she said. Do you feel like that? Asked Gudrun. I get no feeling whatever from the thought of bearing children. Gudrun looked at Ursula with a mask-like, expressionless face. "'Ursula knitted her brows. "'Perhaps it isn't genuine,' she faltered. "'Perhaps one doesn't really want them, in one's soul, only superficially. "'A hardness came over Gudrun's face. "'She did not want to be too definite. "'When one thinks of other people's children,' said Ursula. "'Again, Gudrun looked at her sister.' almost hostile. Exactly, she said, to close the conversation. The two sisters worked on in silence, Ursula having always that strange brightness of an essential flame that is caught, meshed, contravened. She lived a good deal by herself, to herself, working, passing on from day to day and always thinking, trying to lay hold on life to grasp it in her own understanding. Her active living was suspended, but underneath, in the darkness, something was coming to pass. She could break through the last integuments. She seemed to try and put her hands out, like an infant in the womb, and she could not, not yet. Still, she had a strange prescience, an intimation of something yet to come. She laid down her work and looked at her sister. She thought Gudrun so charming, so infinitely charming in her softness and her fine, exquisite richness of texture and delicacy of line. There was a certain playfulness about her too, such a piquancy or ironic suggestion, such an untouched reserve. Ursula admired her with all her soul. Why did you come home, Prune? She asked. Gudrun knew she was being admired. She sat back from her drawing and looked at Ursula from under her finely curved lashes. Why did I come back, Ursula? She repeated. I have asked myself a thousand times. And don't you know, "'Yes, I think I do. "'I think my coming back home was just regular poor, "'moo, sauter.' "'And she looked with a long, slow look of knowledge at Ursula. "'I know,' cried Ursula, "'looking slightly dazzled and falsified, "'and as if she did not know. "'But where can one jump to?' "'Oh, it doesn't matter,' said Gudrun. Somewhat superbly If one jumps over the edge One is bound to land somewhere But isn't it very risky? Asked Ursula A slow mocking smile Dawned on Gudrun's face Ah, she said laughing What is it all but words? And so again she closed the conversation But Ursula was still brooding and how do you find home now that you've come back to it, she asked. Gudrun paused for some moments, coldly, before answering. Then in a cold, truthful voice, she said, I find myself completely out of it. And father? Gudrun looked at Ursula, almost with resentment, as if brought to bay. I haven't thought about him, I've refrained, she said coldly. Yes, wavered Ursula, and the conversation was really at an end. The sisters found themselves confronted by a void, a terrifying chasm, as if they had looked over the edge. They worked on in silence for some time. Gudrun's cheek was flushed with repressed emotion. She resented its having been called into being. Shall we go out and look at that wedding? She asked at length, in a voice that was too casual. Yes, cried Ursula, too eagerly, throwing aside her sewing and leaping up, as if to escape something, thus betraying the tension of the situation and causing a friction of dislike to go over Gudrun's nerves. As she went upstairs, Ursula was aware of the house, Of her home round about her. And she loathed it. The sordid, too familiar place. She was afraid at the depth of her feeling against the home. The milieu. The whole atmosphere and condition of this obsolete life. Her feeling frightened her. The two girls were soon walking swiftly down the main road of Beldover. A wide street. Part shops, part dwelling houses, utterly formless and sordid, without poverty. Gudrun, new from her life in Chelsea and Sussex, shrank cruelly from this amorphous ugliness of a small, colliery town in the Midlands. Yet forward she went, through the whole sordid gamut of pettiness, the long, amorphous, gritty street. She was exposed to every stare. She passed on through a stretch of torment. It was strange that she should have chosen to come back and test the full effect of this shapeless, barren ugliness upon herself. Why had she wanted to submit herself to it? Did she still want to submit herself to it? The insufferable torture of these ugly, meaningless people, this defaced countryside. She felt like a beetle toiling in the dust. She was filled with repulsion. They turned off the main road, past a black patch of common garden, where sooty cabbage stumps stood shameless. No one thought to be ashamed. No one was ashamed at all. It is like a country in an underworld, said Gudrim. The colliers bring it above ground with them, shovel it up. Ursula, it's marvelous, it's really marvelous, it's really wonderful. Another world. The people are all ghouls, and everything is ghostly. Everything is a ghoulish replica of the real world. A replica, a ghoul, all soiled, everything sordid. It's like being mad, Ursula. The sisters were crossing a black path through a dark, soiled field. On the left was a large landscape, a valley of collieries, and opposite hills with cornfields and wood, all blackened with distance, as if seen through a veil of crape. White and black smoke rose up in steady columns, magic within the dark air. Near at hand came the long rows of dwellings, Approaching curved up the hill slope, in straight lines along the brow of the hill. They were of darkened red brick, brittle, with dark slate roofs. The path on which the sisters walked was black, trodden in by the feet of recurring colliers, and bounded from the field by iron fences. The stile that led again into the road was rubbed shiny by the moleskins of the passing miners. Now the two girls were going between some rows of dwellings, of the poorer sort. Women, their arms folded over their coarse aprons, standing gossiping at the end of their block, stared after the Brangwen sisters with that long, unwarying stare of Aborigines. Children called out names. Gudrun went on her way half-dazed, if this were human life, if these were human beings living in a complete world, then what was her own world outside? She was aware of her grass-green stockings, her large grass-green velour hat, her full soft coat of a strong blue color, and she felt as if she were treading in the air, quite unstable, Her heart was contracted, as if at any minute she could be precipitated to the ground. She was afraid. She clung to Ursula, who, through long usage, was inured to this violation of a dark, uncreated, hostile world. But all the time her heart was crying, as if in the midst of some ordeal. I want to go back. I want to go away. I want not to know it, not to know that this exists. Yet she must go forward. Ursula could feel her suffering. You hate this, don't you? she asked. It bewilders me, stammered Gudrun. You won't stay long, replied Ursula. And Gudrun went along, grasping at release. They drew away from the colliery region, over the curve of the hill, into the purer country of the other side, towards willy green. Still, the faint glamour of blackness persisted over the fields and the wooded hills and seemed darkly to gleam in the air. It was a spring day, chill with snatches of sunshine. Yellow celadines showed out from the hedge bottoms, and in the cottage gardens of Willy Green. currant bushes were breaking into leaf, and little flowers were coming white on the gray elysium that hung over the stone walls. Turning, they passed down the high road that went between high banks toward the church. There, in the lowest bend of the road, low under the trees, stood a little group of expectant people waiting to see the wedding. The daughter of the chief mine owner of the district, Thomas Critch, was getting married to a naval officer. Let us go back, said Gudrun, swerving away. There are all those people. And she hung, wavering in the road. Never mind them, said Ursula. They're all right. They all know me. They don't matter. But must we go through them, asked Gudrun. They're quite all right, really, said Ursula, going forward. And together the two sisters approached the group of uneasy, watchful, common people. They were chiefly women, Collier's wives of the more shiftless sort. They had watchful, underworld faces. The two sisters held themselves tense and went straight towards the gate. The women made way for them, but barely sufficient as if grudging to yield ground. The sisters passed in silence through the stone gateway and up the steps on the red carpet, a policeman estimating their progress. What price the stockings, said a voice at the back of Gudrun. A sudden fierce anger swept over the girl, violent and murderous. She would have liked them all annihilated, cleared away, so that the world was left clear for her. How she had hated walking up the churchyard path along the red carpet, continuing in motion in their sight. I won't go into the church, she said suddenly, with such final decision that Ursula immediately halted, turned round, and branched off up a small side path which led to the little private gate of the grammar school, whose grounds adjoined those of the church. Just inside the gate of the school shrubbery, outside the churchyard, Ursula sat down for a moment on the low stone wall under the laurel bushes to rest. Behind her, the large red building of the school rose up peacefully, the windows all open for the holiday. Over the shrubs, before her, were the pale roofs and tower of the old church. The sisters were hidden by the foliage. Gudrun sat down in silence. Her mouth was shut close, her face averted. She was regretting bitterly that she had ever come back. Ursula looked at her and thought how amazingly beautiful she was, flushed with discomfiture. But she caused a constraint over Ursula's nature, a certain wariness. Ursula wished to be alone, freed from tightness, the enclosure of Gudrun's presence. Are we going to stay here, asked Gudrun. I was only resting a minute, said Ursula, getting up as if she rebuked. We will stand in the corner by the fivescore. score. We shall see everything from there. For the moment, the sunshine fell brightly into the churchyard. There was a vague scent of sap and of spring, perhaps of violets from off the graves. Some white daisies were out, bright as angels. In the air, the unfolding leaves of a copper beech were blood red. Punctually at 11 o'clock, the carriages began to arrive. There was a stir in the crowd at the gate, a concentration. As the carriage drove off, wedding guests were mounting up the steps and passing along the red carpet to the church. They were all gay and excited because the sun was shining. Gudrun watched them closely with objective curiosity. She saw each one as a complete figure, like a character in a book or a subject in a picture or a marionette in a theater, a finished creation. She loved to recognize their various characteristics, to place them in their true life, give them their own surroundings, settle them forever as they passed before her along the path to the church. She knew them. They were finished, sealed and stamped, and finished with, for her. There was none that had anything unknown, unresolved, until the crutches themselves began to appear. Then her interest was piqued. Here was something not quite so pre-concluded. There came the mother, Mrs. Crinch, with her eldest son, Gerald. She was a queer, unkept figure, in spite of the attempts that had obviously been made to bring her into the line for the day. Her face was pale, yellowish, with a clear, transparent skin, She leaned forward, rather, her features strongly marked, handsome with a tense, unseeing, predative look. Her colorless hair was untidy, wisps floating down onto her sack coat of dark blue silk from under her blue silk hat. She looked like a woman with a monomania, furtive almost, but heavily proud. Her son was of a fair, sun-tan type, rather above middle height, well-made, and almost exaggeratedly well-dressed. But about him also was the strange, guarded look, the unconscious glisten, as if he did not belong to the same creation as the people about him. Gudrun lighted on him at once. There was something northern about him that magnetized her, In his clear northern flesh and his fair hair was a glisten like sunshine refracted through crystals of ice. And he looked so new, unbroached, pure as an arctic thing. Perhaps he was thirty years old, perhaps more. His gleaming beauty, maleness, like a young, good-humored, smiling wolf did not blind her to the significant, sinister stillness in his bearing the lurking danger of his unsubdued temper. His totem is the wolf, she repeated to herself. His mother is an old, unbroken wolf. And then she experienced a keen paroxysm, a transport, as if she had made some incredible discovery known to nobody else on earth. A strange transport took possession of her, All her veins were in a paroxysm of violent sensation. Good God, she exclaimed to herself, what is this? And then, a moment after, she was saying assuredly, I shall know more of that man. She was tortured with desire to see him again, a nostalgia, a necessity to see him again, to make sure it was not all a mistake, that she was not deluding herself. But she really felt this strange and overwhelming sensation on his account This knowledge of him in her essence This powerful apprehension of him Am I really singled out for him in some way? Is there really some pale gold arctic light That envelops only us two, she asked herself And she could not believe it She remained in a muse, scarcely conscious of what was going around The bridesmaids were here, and yet the bridegroom had not yet come. Ursula wondered if something was amiss, and if the wedding would yet all go wrong. She felt troubled, as if rested upon her. The chief bridesmaids had arrived. Ursula watched them come up the steps. One of them she knew. A tall, slow, reluctant woman with a weight of fair hair and a pale, long face. This was Hermione Rodus, a friend of the Critches. Now she came along with her head held up, balancing an enormous flat hat of pale yellow velvet on which were streaks of ostrich feathers, natural and gray. She drifted forward as if scarcely conscious. Her long, blanched face lifted up, not to see the world. She was rich. She wore a dress of silky, frail velvet, of pale yellow color, and she carried a lot of small, rose-colored cyclamens. Her shoes and stockings were of brownish gray, like the feathers on her hat. Her hair was heavy. She drifted along with a peculiar fixity of the hips, a strange, unwilling motion. She was impressive, in her lovely pale yellow and brownish rose, yet macabre, something repulsive. People were silent when she passed, impressed, roused, wanting to jeer, yet for some reason silenced. Her long, pale face that she carried lifted up, somewhat in Rossetti fashion, seemed almost drugged, as if a strange mass of thoughts coiled in the darkness within her. She was never allowed to escape.
1: Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.